Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Today, uh, I'd like to talk to us. Uh, we'd like, we need to learn a little bit about our church, and, and as we come to the end of the summer here, uh, we have had more people visiting our church, attending our church, joining our church than maybe in the history of our church in the 40-plus years. And um, as we finish out the summer, I thought it would be appropriate to, to spend a few weeks just talking about what it means to be the church. What, it, what do we do to be his church? And um, I think we can learn a lot from some sports teams and other contexts of like military, for example. In, in sports, this is from the Bleacher Report talking about the San Antonio Spurs. Go Spurs, go. Uh, Every now and he says, never every now and again, a team's march to the mountaintop is so decisive and so convincing in both form and function that the sport itself is transformed. Whether they won one or a dynasty's worth of titles, the sport's most memorable squads are the ones who change the way the game is played. The 2013-2014 San Antonio Spurs just joined that list. The vanguard of a bona fide basketball revolution is finally free. I love watching the San Antonio Spurs play, not because I grew up in San Antonio and, and go, you know, have some emotional attachment to them. I am enthralled with their spirit of teamwork. I love how everyone submits to the other, how they look for the other person to receive the glory, how when someone does win the MVP, everyone is excited about it. I like how Popovich is sitting in his coach's seat when everyone else is holding the trophy on a stage. They get unity. They understand that that to get a goal to accomplish, they have to be unified, and to be unified, they have to be humble. We try to emulate that on our staff. We're constantly saying, okay, how do we play like Spurs? Is this person a Spurs? Should we hire that person? Should this person not be on our team because they're not working like Spurs? There's something about getting things done, having a goal. You have to be united to do it, and unity comes through humility. A much more consequential thing would be in the military. Certainly, it's a life and death goal, right? Something to be accomplished. And you know that part, most, much of military training anyway is about being unified. All the way from the supply lines to the people pulling triggers, they have to be unified. And for that to happen, everyone has to be humble. They have to humble themselves under the greater plan and to each other to get this goal to take place. Well, if that's true with sports and things, and, and, in the military, uh, so much more with the most important entity in, on the world today, and that's the local church. When the local church works right, uh, it's what God planned. It's the most powerful uh, entity known. That's all there is to it because that's how God's Spirit is working right now to bring about His kingdom. So we, we see in, in the Bible that the Bible talks about the church working in a unified manner. They have a goal, and then they need to work in unity with one another. And how does that happen? It happens by being humble with one another. And so as we talk this summer in a few weeks, we want to talk first and foremost about being unified. We want to talk about being unified because at least at, at, at this church, we've realized that um, we've had two or three strong values here at Grace. We are experiencing great tranquility in our church leadership and, and a lot of it has to do with this value of unity and some things that we stumbled across about 10 years ago. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a few minute, uh, moments. But this talk that we're giving today, we were, we were kind of assigning uh, it to be taught about every three years, three to f- 
or so years, two to three years, and this, it's been five years since we gave this talk. And this talk revolutionized the unity of our church. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talk, this talk is about unity. When Jesus prayed for you and me, when he prayed for his disciples, one of the most intimate you know, moments in his experience with the 12, he prayed for unity. In this prayer, John chapter 17, I want you to see how he's praying for his disciples and his disciples, 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 which is you and me, right? And how he's praying for unity. He says, my, my, my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that, there's the purpose, there's the big plan, so that the world may believe that you, you have sent me. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent them and have loved them even as, I, even as you have loved me. So Jesus prays for you and for us, this church. He prays that we would be unified. Unity is a high value in Jesus' world. It is a high value in Paul. Paul writes these letters. St. Paul's writing the various churches. They're called epistles. And I think in every epistle there is at least a mention of being unified, unity through humility. A lot of talk about humility. Uh, if there were an NBA basketball team in a church, the worst team would be the Corinthians. He writes two letters to them, and both times because all of this infighting, disunity, sniping at each other, just being bad team. And because of that, they were losing, right? They weren't getting the job done because they weren't being humble. If there was a San Antonio Spurs team... <laughs> This will be the last time I refer to that, okay? If there was a San Antonio Spurs church, it would be the church of Philippi. And when he writes to Philippians in that letter, he, he spends a lot of chapter two, almost an entire chapter, talking about unity through humility. He says, I want you guys to be one. There various expressions, there's one heart, one mind, one thought. And here's how do you do it. You emulate Jesus the Christ, who humbled himself to do the will of the Father, and, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you get unity through humility. Unity is very important in the Bible. It's very important for the local church. In Philippians, the San Antonio Spurs of churches, he says, keep up the great work being unified. Then, on a dime, he spins the conversation, changes the subject, and becomes rather violent as though he's completely ignoring this idea of unity. Here, this is what, what I'm trying to show you here is he goes from this teddy bear, this, this church that he loves maybe the most, okay? he goes from teddy bear to grizzly, grizzly bear in a sentence. If, when you, if you go to Philippians chapter 3, you'll see that in your Bible. You can turn there, I'll show you on the slide. But I want you to notice how Paul is not talking about unity anymore. He's name-calling and, and picking a fight. I wonder why, okay? In other words, I'm sounding like there's a contradiction here, and here's why. Because unity is a value, but it's not the highest value. Unity is a high value in the local church, but it is not the highest value. It's not unity at all expenses, at any expense. So look at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It starts off nice. Further, my brothers and, furthermore, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. 
Where's your humility now, Paul? <laughs> that doesn't sound very unifying. As a matter of fact, there are very few words you could call a Jew that's worse than a dog. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's, it, it's a cultural thing back then, but he's, he's calling him out. Why isn't Paul promoting unity? Because unity is a high value, but it's not the supreme value. There are other things that are more valuable that matter more to Paul than even unity. So as, as Jesus prayed, he prayed for unity, but it wasn't the highest thing to pray for. So here's, here's my point. Unity is a value, but what we find is there are topics that are in different hierarchical, hierarchical hierarchies. There. Man of limited words. That's Winnie the Pooh, I think. It's a quote from Winnie the Pooh. Um, they have different values. And, and what we found 10 years ago, when we were having diff difficulties in our church, we were going through a transition, we were having a lot of arguments, disunity, and we weren't arguing about the topic, we were arguing about the value of the topic. And so one of the guys ran and got an old uh, chapter from one of his uh, seminary books and said, hey, here's a chapter I think we ought to include in the life of our church, and that's how that, this uh, learning time together has become kind of the vernacular of Grace Covenant Church. We want you to learn these vocabulary words. Some of you have heard this once already. We want you to make it part of your life because once we explain this one on the stage, people started saying, wait a minute, I can use that at home. I mean, we're having all these arguments at home, and it's not, we're, we're arguing about the wrong thing. We're not arguing about the thing. We're arguing about the hierarchy of that thing. This chapter puts, puts all of our values into three basic categories, and most of our arguments were about which category they belong in. Once, we're, once we were all in agreement about category two or one or three, then we mostly rested. Oh, okay, well, then let's just Agree to disagree. I'll buy you lunch. Let's, it's, I'm sorry. This took so long to figure out. It, it, it's working at homes. It was working in offices. It's working on teams. And so today we're going to explain this again, and we're hoping that you don't necessarily just apply it here at Grace for the sake of unity, but we also want you to apply it in other situations. You'll find it to be quite handy. Now, in your, in your bulletins there, your missalettes there, you can see on the top of the page in the notes section, there's this chart, and the chart should be called How Much I Care Chart how much I care chart. On the far left, we'll be over here, and it would represent, I don't care anything at all. That zero to over here will be the extreme, will be 100. So it's zero, zero to 100, and at zero, it's I couldn't care less. And I'm not, certainly not going to argue about something like that. Around 50 is reasonable. I have some good reasons to believe this. Some are important, some are not so much important. And then over here at 100, uh, I, it defines me. And this last quadrant over here, it'll be the things that define us. So I'll help you fill in that chart. We'll define those three categories, and I'll give you examples on, on what might fit in there appropriately, and then how we can apply it at grace and maybe is in your life as well, right, in various other places. This first quadrant, okay, the first part is called opinion. And in the opinion section, that is from 0 to 30, and it represents the way you have opinions <laughs> is almost devoid of objectivity, or reason. You, well, you just like it. It's a personal preference. It's a taste. It's the way you look at things. It's mostly sensory in nature. And so I've picked for an icon for this, Conan's Pizza. Now, the reason I've picked Conan's Pizza is because for 18 years, I served uh, high school students in some capacity, and I ate a lot of pizza. That's the best pizza. Maybe in the world. Okay. And here, and, and I've made decisions based on that pizza. 
I did. Well, Melinda and I were looking at churches uh, way back, like 29 years ago. We were looking at going to Fort Collins or here in Austin, Texas. And on my list, you know, no Conans in Fort Collins. I'm, I want to be somewhere near this restaurant. What they have here is deep dish, whole wheat, Chicago-style pizza. With, with, yeah, look at that thing. I mean, and all natural ingredients. <laughs> One year, this changed uh, our whole family in a lot of different ways for the good and the bad. Uh, we came home from a Christmas Eve service at this very church. We sang a little town of Bethlehem, Silent Night. We went out with candles, maybe. It was, it was sentimental and romantic, even. And then I said, hey, let's go to Conan's for Christmas Eve. And so the kids loved Conan's, too. And so we went there. And, and when we were waiting for, for the pizza to cook, because it takes a long time to cook a Chicago-style deep-dish whole wheat pizza. You can just smell it. Well, the ambiance of Conan's, it was started in the 70s, never quite got over the 70s. So everything in there is 1970. If you weren't alive, then you could just spend some time in Conan's and you'll get it. The walls are decorated and the tables are decorated with Frank Frazetta, an artist in the 70s. He drew the, the cartoon covers for Conan, the barbarian. And Conan is this big, huge, honking monster, kind of like the Hulk without the green stuff. He rides a Clydesdale, carries a... Uh, a double axe, uh, slays giant serpents that are eight to ten feet in diameter. He's always rescuing um, well-endowed women wearing the wrong bathing suits. And they're, they're all over the walls. Now, for ambiance, they're always playing classic rock from the 70s. I mean, this is a great place for what? But on holidays, they play heavy metal bands. So if you can just imagine, we go from here right, with Silent Night and candles to waiting in Conan's with the Frazettas on the wall, on the tables, and, and a deaf leopard or some uh, twisted sister, somebody playing heavy metal, whatever, on, on the radio. My little daughter, she's a little about this size, and this is what she looks like, right, sitting at this table, and she looks at me, and she, and she just starts crying, and she says, Dad, it's Christmas Eve, I said, oh, well, yeah, I know we're at Conan's. Is this great or what? And she said, I, I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to the car. So she takes off. Her sister leaves. Her mom looks at me, and she says, she's right. And so they go sit in the car. I'm not leaving without a pie, all right? So that's, that was Christmas Eve, whatever, 19-something, 95, and um, we still go back Christmas Eve. That's where we go. But we just, we've changed it. We get it to go. And the family goes home, I drive by, listen to a little Black Sabbath, look at some Frazettas, get my pizza and go. That's my opinion. It doesn't matter. I don't care what pizza you eat. And you shouldn't care what pizza I eat because it doesn't matter. You know what, call, you, know what you call a person that has a lot of opinions? Opinionated. If you want the unity of the church, you need to not be opinionated. You need to not share your opinions as though they matter because they're on the scale of you don't care and no one else cares and no one else is supposed to care because their opinions, they're founded and grounded in what? Just feelings, just feelings, okay? That's how you keep the church united. You understand what belongs in opinions. And the next category is the largest has the largest stand. It is reasonable. It is logical. It is objective. Okay? And we're going to use for an icon for that. It's called beliefs. It's 31 to 90. And for beliefs, we're going to use this 
little calculator here because the math works. It adds up. Again, we have things. This is a large category. Most of what we deal with are, are in the uh, belief category because we have reasons to believe what we believe in, in our value systems. But let me say this. There are two types of beliefs. Okay? And it's independent of how much information you have. Because you can have a lot of information, but the two types of belief. There's important and unimportant. There are important beliefs and unimportant beliefs. Your beliefs are, are not necessarily strengthened by how much information you have, how much logic you have. What matters is how tightly you hold on to them. And if you have an unimportant belief, you don't need to care about it. I believe that Honda Motor Company has the best uh, uh, drive engine made in the world. I believe that for a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons. I uh, read often, read Road and Track and Car and Driver. I peruse Consumer Report. Did you know, just, this is just kind of fun stuff, did you know that in a six-year uh, stretch, all 33 cars of the Indianapolis 500 were all powered by Honda Motor Corporation? No, really? Yeah, they, every single car on the track. And did you know that those six consecutive years, all 33 cars, not one of them had engine failure? That's pretty good engine building. They are the best motor company in the world. I have reasons to believe that. Honda makes a luxury version called Acura. I've owned five of them. You can buy them used for cheaper than Hondas sometimes. I currently own three. I own a Honda mower. If they made a toothbrush, I'd brush my teeth with it. <laughs> None of that is important. I have a lot of information. I have a lot of reasons to believe it. It does not matter. Who cares? A lot of people, you know what you call a person that argues a lot? Argumentative. Because they don't distinguish between th things they believe that matter and things that they believe that don't matter. The important over here and the unimportant over there. Just be, who it, it does, the definition of maturity, write this down, the definition of maturity is caring more and more about less and less, and less and less about more and more, okay? I'm going to carry more and more about less and less. I'm going to, there's a few things I'm going to care a lot about, and I'm going to care less and less about more and more. As I grow older, as I grow mature, a lot of things are going to start sliding this way. And I'm going, to get in a lot more, I'm going to get in a lot less arguments because I could not care less about them. Because I'm attached. You know how you become argumentative? You, you take things, you attach emotion to something that's supposed to be just reasonable. That's how you become argumentative. You have a reason for something, and then you, you wrap it around emotion. And here's why it happens. Frederick Nietzsche said that people make decisions based on emotion and then try to justify it with reason. Let me say that again. We make decisions, like purchasing decisions, based on feelings, and then we try to rationalize it with reason. We buy a sexy, shiny, fun thing because it looks good to me, and then we've got to figure out how to justify it by the time we pull in our driveway and have to answer for it. And so we run around looking for reasons, and so we argue. We're argumentative about things that don't matter because we have emotional attachment to them. Do you see? So if you give $6,000, just play money, you give $6,000 to a real estate salesperson in Los Angeles, she'll buy a $6,000 purse. 
I know. If you're objective, you're thinking there's no purse made like that. But, but if you like it a lot, you'll buy it, and then you'll justify it by saying, well, I am a real estate salesperson and selling homes in Bel Air and Santa Monica and Hollywood, and this will impress my clients. Be quiet. You made it a point, you, you purchase it because it looks good, and you want to be known as a person carrying that type of purse, and now you're justifying it reason, and now you're argumentative about it. You go to Austin, live music castle of the world, drop $6,000 on a couple of these band guys, and what do they do? we got to buy an amplifier. I mean, we've got to buy one right now. You already have like three, four of these things? Yeah, but this one, it goes to 11. It's a whole different style. Look at the plug is different. The whole, even the plug cord is different, really. So we're going to make a decision based on emotion so that I'll have the newest amp, and I'm going to justify it with reason. And that, I mean, that's how, peop, that's how people become argumentative. And that's why they, they buy bigger guns or faster laptops or, I know I'm meddling. And all of them are wrong because for $6,000, you could buy a used Acura and that would be the right thing to buy. <laughs> all these people. Let me summarize, please. We have opinions over here and we hold them loosely. We have beliefs and the belief systems are based on reason and we need to stay objective in our reasoning. But even in our our objectivity, we know that there are unimportant beliefs that we don't hold on to and there are important beliefs that we do grab a hold of. So don't be argumentative. Understand what the issues are. If you made a value system based on appearance, then just say that. It'll, It'll make it shorter. You just like, you have a preference for a style of music. Good. It's just a preference. That's all it is, right? Here's kind of on, a, on, a, kind of on the backside of that. There are, there are some people over in, in, in something that's supposed to be over here, like a strong belief, and they back down perpetually. They won't defend what they believe, and they have the reasons to believe. It's because, it's because they're insecure, If you find yourself having beliefs but backing away from your beliefs, often you're emotionally insecure somehow, maybe that you don't like uh, the consequences of hard truth, and there are consequences for hard truth, and sometimes it's, I don't want to be uh, judged, or I want to be liked, and so there's a fair amount of people that will give up categories over here, truth, values, beliefs that they should hold on to, and they let them slide because they'd rather be popular, or they just want to be liked, or they don't want to pay the price for that truth. If that's, your, if that's your history, you need to understand that your likability or your ego is not as important as truth that can be known. Okay? And that's how maybe you could apply this. Some of us, we need to apply this. Don't be argumentative. Right? Be unified by being humble to know what category your values are in and how much they should carry. And then some of us need to kind of stand up for some of the things that we believe in. Okay. All right. So we have opinions over there, 0 through 30. 31 through 90 is beliefs. They're strong and weak, but there's also important and unimportant. And then this last category over here, we want to to care more and more about less and less, the smallest little stool that we have. Okay. This is convictions. These are convictions. You want a few of these. You want as few as possible because you'd be willing to die for these things. It was 90 to 100, and, and my prop for this is a noose, because you will go to the noose. You will put your head through this. If it, there's a line in the sand, and this is the, the line that you will not cross, and you will stay your ground. 
please make this minimal. Don't be a sloppy, dumb martyr. I've, I, I know people, I can't go into the details, but I know people, they, they did a career conviction on silly things like, I won't stand for Comic Sans fonts being used anymore. And, and while objectively we can all agree that that's a really ugly font style, it is not a conviction over here. Okay? People, people will say, I have a conviction that we need to work in an orphanage uh, in Russia. A conviction? If we don't do this, you'll die? That might be your conviction, and it shouldn't be because there's not enough information to have that kind of confidence. But it's, it's going to be way over here for me, and maybe we could reason with this together. But at this church, if you, if you throw around words like conviction, we're going to stop and say, conviction? You'll die for that? Well, we chose a noose because of, of a recollection of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, had a conviction that it would be better to assassinate uh, a president then let him live. And so he conspired to kill Adolf Hitler. He was one of the many people in the many conspiracies to kill Adolf Hitler because he had a conviction that it would be better for that one man to die than millions of other people, innocent people, to, to continue dying. So he plotted that. He got caught in that plot, and he went to the gallows. He went to those gallows, but he didn't go kicking and screaming and whining and playing the victim. He counted the cost ahead of time. He understood what would happen if he got caught. He did get caught. And two weeks before the end of the war, he prayed for his captors. They stripped him naked to humiliate him, and they hung him on the gallows, and he would make the choice again and again. A conviction holds you. You are owned by a conviction. A conviction tells you how to live. That's what a conviction. Do you have convictions? Do you have a few things that you won't let go of because they won't let go of you? You could write those down. How do beliefs over here become convictions? Okay, we saw how we saw how sometimes people's beliefs swing way too far over this way because they get emotionally attached to them. You know, the way a lot of people have beliefs that become convictions is because they, they wrap their identity into that value. They, they, they hold to something that should be a belief or maybe even just opinion, but they, it becomes them and they are defined by it. I mean, some easy ways to... And they, and they lose all objectivity, right? They can't they can't think and talk rationally about these things because there's too much at stake, their identity. So, I mean, you can see examples of this quite easily when you see an athlete that won't let go of, of, of his or her athleticism, maybe even after an injury, all is lost. They become suicidal because they blow out a knee, right? A mother sometimes defines her existence or success in life by how her children turn out. And, and what does that do to the child? They, they are always on this performance mode, right? And they can't slip up and they're under undue pressure, that sort of thing, right? And, and then the mother feels shame. That's because her identity is wrapped up in that. And so, so the style of parenting and the style of education find them their way way too far over here. Right? Sometimes people in business do the same thing about their success. So they lose a job or lose a deal and they go right off the cliff. Why? Because, they, because their identity their identity was wrapped up into something that shouldn't have been. They're in the wrong category, do you see? They're in the wrong category. Why, 
You see how that's happened? Maybe with you guys, maybe. When, when something happens and it takes too much away from you, it's because you've made more of it than you're supposed to on this continuum of how much you should care. Why do we get into these arguments, like in church and otherwise? Why is there so much fighting about things that we shouldn't fight about? Because we are emotionally involved in something or we are, our identities are attached to those things. So let's, let's just do this for the sake of clarity. Um, your parenting style, okay? Your parenting style, you know, I don't know, just uh, holidays, uh, how, how to discipline, to spank, not to spank, when to spank, um, schools, private school, public school. Where, where do you think they should fit on this continuum? I'll take any answers. This is going to be a long sermon. I just, I, I'm, we already went long first hour, so help me. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be a belief, and some aspects of the belief are supposed to be over here, and some will be over here, right? If, you know how you know your objective in your school choice? Is if you can acknowledge that no matter what school choice you make, private school, public school, or homeschool, they all have gaping, huge holes in them, and you must, you must acknowledge that. A person that can't acknowledge that has emotional attachment to the style of education and are no longer reasonable. You know how a lot of people parent? They look back at this emotional experience and say, this is the way I was raised, and so I'll parent the same way. Or this is the way I was raised, and I'll parent the exact opposite. <laughs> That's not a way to choose a parenting style. That's not rational. And so, so many of our classes here on campus are trying to help you. Here's what the Bible says about parenting. Here's some reasonable things to think about. And then you can apply them, but not argue over them. Don't hold on to them. Here's one. Here's a barn burner. Spending time with extended family. Okay, you're, everybody's a grown-up, okay? So you're spending time with extended family. So you're a grown-up, you're 30 years old, going home for Thanksgiving or Christmas or for the weekends, all that sort of thing. Is that an opinion, belief, or conviction? Where could that be? Hold on, more, more of the story. And, and your family's not nice, and your family's not nice. And so your, 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 your brother, your sister, your mother, your father will take a shot at you, a dig at your wife or husband, and maybe belittle your children. And you go back again and again and again. Do you know why you go back? Do you know why everybody else wants you to stop going back in your family? Because you have a value that's attached to your identity or emotion, and you think it ought to be over here, that because you grew up in the same roof, under the same roof, you have an obligation. Okay? And so you have an obligation to go back to these events. And then you probably, have, you probably have a value that you should protect yourself, you should protect the people you love, and you should protect your husband or wife, but being raised in the same roof, that's more valuable. And so you keep going back. It's not objective. You've tied your identity into your last name, and you've tied emotion into this, into this decision-making, and it's costing you and your mate and your children. I would propose to you a few things to reconsider, that you made a promise to God that you would leave your father and mother and become one flesh. And you made a promise to him. So 
your protection of your family is here, and your obligation to events is here. And so you, unconditional love for your family is a good thing. Unconditional attendance is not. Unconditionally picking up the phone anytime they call is not necessary. Unconditional um, care for your family is not a conviction or a strong belief. You've made it into that. And it's costing everyone around you. Everyone, if you're the leader of a family, they're, they're wondering when you will see is this is a strong belief that you swore to God, maybe a conviction, that you would leave your father and mother, just like you said in the, in the ceremony, and that you would protect this new family, even at the expense of hurting your extended family. That would be a great day. Let me add some objectivity to this, okay? Biff has a 4th of July party every year on the 4th of July. You take your wife or your, your, your spouse and your children, you go down there the first year, and Biff says, <laughs> sorry about your wife gaining all that weight. What? And then says something about you being a loser at work and your kids not being all that good in school. Do you go back? No. Maybe you say something like, hey, Biff, it's 4th of July. We should be having fun. And if we don't have fun, we won't come back. So you come back the next year, and then Biff does a couple of other zings, zags, and, and punches below the belt. And you say, hey, Dad, are we going back there again? Never. We won't wave at him on the way to the mailbox. That's objectivity. You know what lack of objectivity is? Is going back year after the year, event after event, picking up the phone, doing things you shouldn't do. Do you want to learn how to work this scale of how much you care? You could apply that to your family and go home a hero today. Unconditional love is not the same as unconditional attendance. Okay? That's how you apply the Bible, friends. You look at vows that you make and you, and you put everything else behind them. That's how we do it here at Grace Covenant Church. We look at various issues and we say, okay, what are we going to argue about? What, do, what are the things that we care about? What are the things that are we going to make... Kind of decisive issues. And, and, and listen, and if you're emotionally involved in these decisions and these discussions, would you just say that? We had, this came up 10 years ago because people put music style over here. And we just kept having arguments over and over again. Then we realized, oh, no, 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 it's not the music style. It's their identity. They don't love choral music. They love singing choral music in the choir. They love you looking at them singing choral music in the choir. And we were taking that away from them. Okay, I can appreciate that. That hurts, you know, but, <laughs> but we're going to move on. And so maybe we could leave friendly. If we leave friendly because we just disagree, that style of music goes over here. And we'll agree to disagree. Color of this carpet, what's that? Opinion, okay. How about the doctrine, most of the doctrine of Jesus Christ? over here. Most of it's going to be in a conviction because if he's not who he said he is, everything falls apart. I'm not who, I am, I, I am not me if Jesus is not God and man. Bible translations, New American Standard, New International Version, today's New International Version, what do you want to do here? Help me, you guys, come on, we're 20 seconds late already. Okay, right. Right here, right? There's a lot of good reasons for either one of the, many of the translations. What we put on the slides are the, are the translation that most effectively communicates what the original author was up to. 
The modern tongues movement that happened in the 80s, it wasn't about modern tongues. It was about what, where it was on this scale. And a lot of churches were making it a big issue. And we said, if it's a big issue, you should go to a church that makes it a big issue. But it is not a big issue for us because the Bible says, Paul says, that unity is more important than spiritual gifts, any spiritual gifts, all spiritual gifts, all the time. If a spiritual gift becomes divisive, it's not even a spiritual gift anymore because the Spirit doesn't do that. The modern expression of that today is Reformed theology and Calvinism. A lot of people think they're the same. They're not. But more and more churches now are making that form of theology an issue of division. It's all they talk about. It's their goal in life. Listen to a sermon last week from a Bible church, oddly enough. And he said, after, at the, after the end of this whole kind of diatribe, he said, and now you have the faith of a 16th century reformer. And I said, so? I don't care. I don't want to have the faith of a 16th century reformer. I want to have the faith of Paul. I mean, who is, who is, we don't quote, we don't quote, here's what we believe. We believe that the Bible is a different type of revelation in kind, not in degree. Everyone else sometimes gets lucky. The, look, reformed faith might be true. Calvinism might be true. But we don't know. It's not like the Bible. And so we don't, we don't quote those as sources of authority. Church history, founding fathers, reformers, tradition. None of those things have priority at this church because it's, a different, it's just a different degree of revelation, not a different kind of revelation. For, you, for people to be right about Reformed theology and Calvinism, do you know how many people have to be wrong? Do you know who those people are? Wow. So we, we're going to just agree that there's a lot of different room in here. And as Chesterton said, God's mysteries are so more profound than man's solutions. We enjoy the mysteries here. You're welcome to be a five-point Calvinist or reform here. You are, as long as you don't make it divisive. Because then it becomes an issue of very strong belief. And then we're, we're just going to keep talking about it until we make sure that we understand each other. The heart of grace here... Is, is, is these things that matter the most. Salvation, where does that fit? Oh, yeah, it has to fit here. We're talking about eternity, right? And by the way, when we're talking about something as important as salvation, you have to be objective. You have to do the math on this. You have to have reasons to believe. So many people pick a faith because of the pizza box. I grew up this way, so what? It makes me feel real good inside when these beliefs, who cares? So your belief system is based on the same feeling I have when I eat a Conan's pizza right out of the oven? Is that the way you're choosing the destiny of your soul? This is objectivity. Has God said? Are there books that say this is from God? Okay, let's line those five books up. Okay, out of those five books, are those books verified by history? Archaeology, prophecies fulfilled, supernaturally inexplicable, saying, yeah, this could be from outside the sources that we have. In that book, how does it say that you spend eternity with God? How are you reconciled with him? And this one book, the Bible says, different than every other religious system in the world, it says, by grace you are transformed. It is by Jesus paying your debt the check cleared. He proved it on the resurrection. That's where you put your hope. It is a conviction. 
do the math here. Do, here's, here's what I'm appealing to for many people, okay? Please spend more time about salvation than you do about your home purchase, your next car, or maybe, I don't know, a life insurance policy. We'll read books. We'll listen to guys on talk radio. We'll do all kinds of things to make some kind of decision like that. And then when it's time to choose what church you'll go to or how you'll spend eternity or how you're right with God, I don't want to hurt my mom's feelings. Hurt her feelings. Do some homework. You want to know what a conviction looks like? A conviction motivates every part of your life. All of the dynamics of your life are intertwined with a conviction. When your conviction is about Jesus Christ, everything you do is about Jesus Christ. This one thing. When you enjoy life, it is to enjoy Christ. When you suffer in life, it is suffering for Christ. Look at Paul's application of what a conviction looks like. This is what I want for you today, a conviction for life. Look at the slides up here for chapter 3. Let's go to the end there. Um, 10, the next one. Next, next one. Seven, seven through. There it is. Yep, sorry. Look, look how he's all about conviction. But whatever were gains to me, are, I now consider a loss for Christ's sake. All the things I did before, that's manure compared to what Christ is. I want to know Christ. Everything in his life is to want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection in my addiction. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in my soul and can can conquer my, my addiction to anger and my addiction to vanity, to participate in his sufferings. When I, this is Paul speaking, when I was beaten with rods, I thought, I wonder if this is how Jesus felt when he was beaten with rods. Everything is about knowing Christ, becoming like him in his death even, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. That, friends, is what I want for you. There's two applications today. One, let's continue to be a great church. Let's continue to be a harmonious church that's functioning on unity for the right purpose. We're humble before each other. There's no superstars here. We're just trying to get along and do God's will, okay? And we have convictions for life. And we, and we know what they are. We know why we believe them. And we, and we will live our lives around them. As we get mature, we care more and more about less and less and less and less about more and more. That's why I feel like at this church, we're doing well. We're in God's will. Please, let's continue to do that. I hope this has been helpful. Let's pray. Let's sing a song. Lord Jesus, we, we will sing that you are, you are everything. You are our only thing. And uh, you are our cornerstone. Lord, I'd ask that you would help people understand that today. Lord, there's some people probably today that are known for being opinionated. And Lord, I'd ask that you would cut to the quick their souls, that they would see that that's not a unifying or pleasant thing to be. They would take responsibility maybe and apologize. People that are argumentative here today, Lord, that they would see that they've put way too much value into something because their identity's wrapped up into it or some kind of emotions tied up into it. I'd ask that, again, I'd ask your spirit would give them the courage to acknowledge that take responsibility, apologize, make amends, be reunified. And then, Lord, I'd, I'd ask that you would help us know what we believe, that we would understand the convictions for life, that you are a cornerstone, you are our everything, and all is a means of knowing you. I pray this um, as the church. In Jesus Christ, amen. 
For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.